Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and today we have a very, very special guest, Dr. Derek G. Hanley from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Derek, thank you for being with us today, sir. Oh, Luke, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, uh, Dr. Hanley, can you just tell the listeners a couple sentences of, about yourself so we can uh, just learn a little bit more about you, sir? So, I'm currently an assistant professor of English at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, as you um, just stated. Um, I have 28 total years of active and reserve um, United States Navy and and probably the the thing i'm well there's a lot of things i'm proud about but i used the gi bill to to earn my phd um from carnegie mellon university which i just earned in, in 2018 so not that long ago awesome well, congratulations that's exciting Thank you. it's Thank really you. exciting okay so so given your sum total of all your years spent active duty uh, and the reserves, and I also, when we, you know, get into it, I, I hope we all talk about you being enlisted and an officer, and mm -hmm. now you're in higher academics, and you yourself use the GI Bill to get an education and, and a terminal degree at a great school, mm -hmm. so the combined uh, sum total of this, can you, can you help uh, the listeners understand and what you see that veterans are doing well in higher education at the, at the time? So I've been thinking about this question and um, what veterans are doing well, and I'm thinking about it from, from at least from my standpoint as a student and also as a faculty member who've taught at community colleges. Um, I think what veterans are doing well and I think what veterans have is, is this internal drive, right? To, to complete the mission, if you will. And so in, in, in education, whether they're getting a degree um, is to, to perform, to do better and pushing themselves um, to achieve. Um, just a mere fact that they're showing up to, you know, get an education is, is a wonderful thing. And um, as studies have shown, um, veterans tend to do better in academia than their um, civilian counterpoint. So that internal drive, that, that internal drive, I think that, that, that we as, as veterans have to do well. Yeah, I, I'm glad you say that because I could not agree more. And, you know, that's something that pops up time and time again on the show. But like you pointed out, you know, veterans uh, are outperforming their peers, their non-vet peers in school. Uh, and also they're typically doing this with a GPA of majors that tend to be a little more rigorous than some other majors, you know? And it seems to me 
that the, if you boil it all down, the one thing is this drive that you talk about, this kind of, you know, we can't even really label it uh, other than it's a mixture of perseverance and mission orientation and yeah. uh, just, you know, wanting to be successful at whatever the energy expenditure is. And I think that one, you know, that one little element it's so interesting because uh, even though we can't really properly label it and mm -hmm. we don't know fully how it's formed and exists, it makes a huge difference, right? It definitely, it definitely does make a huge difference. And, and I think with veterans, um, you know, you already have a sense of accomplishment, right? Um, whether it's just, you know, your boot camp, your A school, your MOS school, um, or officer candidate programs, however, however you got there, um, you already have a sense of accomplishment. And, and, and I think that, and, and, you know, brings a little bit of confident, a confidence that you can, you know, overcome challenges. So, um, I think there's some academics kind of explore this and I'm not familiar with the work, but um, the word grit keeps coming to my mind. I think, I think that was the thing that folks are trying to instill in students that I think veterans already bring is this, is this sense of grit to, to, uh, to school, to their accomplishments. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. So now on the flip side of this question, sir. So uh, what is something that you see that veterans could do better in higher education? So let me answer this in two ways. I just thought about this because we're thinking about academics, but I want to say uh, we're thinking about veterans. Um, I think um, what academia has done well towards veterans is where that veterans require certain needs. I think what academia hasn't done well, um, and I'm talking about those places that perhaps don't have a large amount of veteran students, don't necessarily know what those needs are or how to go about it, meeting those needs. And I think that's some of the wonderful things that um, veteran studies are, are helping academics uh, the Journal of Veteran Studies, you know, to help academics to understand. So um, from my own experience, um, from my oldest son, who is a Marine Corps veteran, who is, um, who just recently finished his um, associate's degree and, and, and will begin um, attending school at North Carolina A&T um, in the fall. I think the one thing that we have as veterans don't do well, and this is not anything new to your, to your listeners, but we don't know how to ask for help. Right. Right. Um, we, we, we need to figure it out. We got to tough it out. Right. You know, it's almost like, you know, whenever you get hurt, you don't want to go to medical because you don't want to be perceived as being, you know, we have a bunch of vocabulary to use it. I'm not going to, I can't use it here. But um, so it's just this tough it out, this ethos, this strong, you know, to get it, to get it done. Whereas academia is set up for that. Academia is, is, is built for having these 
um, these programs, these departments, counseling and things to help students. There's an understanding. And unfortunately, as veterans, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily get that. One of the, one of the wonderful things that was done for me and um, when I first started graduate school um, is I was assigned a, a person who was a mentor who was further along in a program who was also a veteran. Right. And I think that was a wonderful thing, you know, having a peer mentor who's also a veteran who's navigating these academic waters. And so when I had a tough time, my first semester um, in graduate school, I think, you know, I was taking this, uh, it was, it was a, it was a course on, it was called tragedy. And I thought the title sounded good. So, you know, my, you know, um, and I take this class, I think it was in the theater arts department. It had all these PhDs and I didn't understand what the, these folks were saying. I mean, they were using, they were talking English, but I didn't understand a word. And I had such, <laughs> I had such a tough time with this class and I struggled and, um, you know, I'm here I am with these PhD students. I am 10 years removed from my undergraduate experience. I'm coming out of wartime Navy right. and all of a sudden, you know, four months later, I'm, I'm sitting here in this graduate classroom and they're using words like Foucault and Habermas. And I'm like, I don't know what the heck is going on. I get a B minus in the course, which is for graduate school is almost like the kiss of death. Right, right. You're on the line right there. I'm on the line. I'm on the cusp that maybe, you know, this is going to end before it starts. And my peer mentor, you know, who I was assigned, you know, it's like, Derek, you know, what are you doing taking that class? <laughs> here are the classes you need to take over, <laughs> over here and here. And he also gave me, um, told me to buy this, it's called a critical theory dictionary. And, uh, and once I got that and, and it's, oh, okay, Foucault, okay, let me read that up. Oh, okay, this is what they're talking about. It's these little right. nuggets, these little nuggets got the gouge. He gave me the gouge on, on how to how to navigate um, this this portion of, of, of graduate, graduate school. And, and it was so helpful. And, and I think that's what saved me. So, you know, asking for help and having people in place to give the help for veterans because they know the veteran experience as well as academia. Yeah, I love hearing that they paired you up with someone, you know, like that um, and, and helping you through that problem. I commend you because it seems like your problem came from you just being so motivated. <laughs> you took a class that was maybe a couple levels, right? So oh, yeah. good for you. But, uh, you know, but that's great for them, for them doing that because, you know, we've talked about that on the show a couple of times and I'll, I'll say this. It's like if, if you were on, on my campus and, and I had just met you and someone's like, okay, well, you need to listen to Derek. He's very knowledgeable. And I was a vet. I might be like, okay. But then if someone said, listen to Derek, he, he's a vet too, then I'd be like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm going to listen to him more. But then if we were peers, if you were a student veteran and I was a student veteran, you know, what I've noticed, it's like a tier, you know, if someone's a non-vet on campus and in a position of authority, 
it's like, okay, we might listen. Then if they find out that the person was a vet in a position of authority, they're like, okay, I'm going to listen to this person. But if it's peer to peer Mm -hmm. and you say, take this class, I'm going to say, okay, I'm taking the class. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, that's like the no question space. Right. You know, right. Absolutely. I love that they did that. It was, it was a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful thing. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. You know, it's kind of interesting looking back and thinking about, you know, this journey and, and how important, how important that was. Definitely. That's great. That's great. And obviously, you know, it's, it's so wonderful because as you said, you've, you know, you completed all your work in 2018, you're, you know, employed. So, I mean, it's amazing how these little, these little bricks, you know, kind of all build together. So Derek, um, now let's, let's go back and let's go back in time a little bit. And okay. Can you share share with the audience kind of what your motivation was to join the Navy? And um, then once you joined the Navy, you know, what was that like? What was your experience like? What were your jobs like and, and your time in the Navy like? Well, so we're going to go way back. We're going to go to the beginning. I think for me, there was something that took hold eight or nine years old about military aviation. And um, I became locked on on that idea early on, you know, had the G.I. Joe toys. And ah, that's what got me, too. Yeah, <laughs> I had all the G.I., you know, um, I think Ace was the name of the the, the pilot and uh, toy or whatever. Yep. And um, at one point, you know, when you think military aviation, you normally think Air Force, right? And that's kind of like what I was 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 thinking. Um, but in high school, there was this movie that came out called Top Gun, uh, right? Um, and I'm not sure what year Top Gun came out. I think they just did a remake. Uh, or doing a remake, but um, I first walked into a Navy recruiting office in in fall of 1988, okay. um, um, and I enlisted. I enlisted in a delayed entry program. Um. um so. <laughs> uh there's some good recruiters out there and there's some bad recruiters out there. <laughs> so I want to keep it 100. I want to keep it 100%. <laughs> I want to keep it 100%. So what I mean by that is I had this one recruiter tell me that the way to become a naval aviator was to be a Navy mechanic. Oh, man. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, I, I originally... Uh, through the delayed entry program, enlisted to be a Navy mechanic. And then talking to some folks later on, um, like, you know, I'm, there's nothing mechanical necessarily, you know, um, um, about me. I later switched to, uh, they don't have this rate anymore, data process DP, right? Okay. So this is, this is the 80s. You're starting to get these home computers. I had a Commodore 64 um, doing these type of, basic programs and things like that. And so, you know, I remember saying doing recruiters. So, okay. So now I'm supposed to go in. I'm 
supposed to go in, go, you know, do boot camp, go to um, the A school for, for data processing, which is now, I think, IT, I think, in, uh, in the Navy now. And so if you're familiar with the late entry program is, so this is, you know, you know, I'm, I'm doing this right before, you know, during my senior year and you go to a weekly meeting or whatever, and then you don't go into boot, you don't go to boot camp until after you graduate high school. Well, um, during this year, um, a friend of mine who had joined the Navy um, a year prior, he graduated high school a year prior, um, came back home and visited. And um, he was saying about this program that he was doing. Um, his name is Preston Gill. Um, I want to give him a shout out. Navy, he's a Navy captain and commanding officer in SA Mechanicsburg. So Preston comes home and he says, you know, Derek, have you thought about this? And he told me about um, this officer selection and training program called Boost. Okay. Broaden opportunity for officer selection and training. And so I didn't know anything. I don't know anything to difference between officers and enlisted. I don't know what that is about. Right. Um, I think I did, you know, learn that to, in order to become an aviator, um, you had to be an officer. So I go back to my recruiter, say, hey, can you tell me more about this program? He gives me over to a person about officer programs, make a long story short. Um I, I apply for it, I get accepted. And so at this time, and, and boost program is no longer around. So basically the way the boost program worked for civilians, uh, which were track twos, they called us track twos. When we went in the Navy, we went to boot camp. I went to boot camp in um, San Diego, California. Okay. And then, um, which I was already slated to go, um, eight days after graduating high school, I'm in boot camp. Oh, wow. And then completion of boot camp, then I literally walk across the base to start this program um, called Boost. And so Boost, you had um, track ones and track twos. Track ones were people from the fleet. Okay. Track twos were people, you know, coming straight out of the high school. Um, and if you didn't, if you didn't, it's basically a year long prep school, kind of like, you know, NAPS, Naval Academy Prep School. Um, and if you fail out, you know, the joke was, you know, you're going to go be scraping paint off the ships and, and, and things <laughs> like that. So, so, so what I have in common with, you know, you know, with, with, with enlisted is, is, is boot camp, but I didn't get to go. I do remember, I do remember when I got the second little E2, E2 stripe on my shoulder. I remember thinking that was a big deal um and everything but the purpose of boost was 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 a you know get your scores up so you could qualify for either go to the naval academy or rotc program so okay. it, it was math science and and english and so um and from there i did rotc so okay. uh, I remember thinking at the time, um, you know, the Naval Academy, I thought about the Naval Academy, but then I remember thinking, you know, I just want to be a college student. Right. 
and they were kind of, you had to do that plebe summer and it was almost kind of like boot camp all over again and, <laughs> right. and I, didn't, I didn't want to do that <laughs> so um, I ended up um, attending um, in Hampton University which was okay. a wonderful experience I always like to say is is, is um, the single best decision I've made in life was to go to Hampton University um, a a uh, HBCU right there in Hampton Roads. So we had all the benefits of being near military bases, you know, Naval Exchange and stuff like that. And um, so I did ROTC. What was unique about ROTC for me, um, I was the only English major um, in ROTC. And, and so I was always this kind of like this odd duck. <laughs> Right, where most of my, you know, friends were computer science, these technical majors and things like that. And I did one semester, my first semester was computer science, and I quickly realized that that wasn't, wasn't for me. <laughs> you know, I quickly realized that wasn't, that wasn't the case. So, um, so, yeah, so I was an English major. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think I kind of stood out in the English classrooms. You know, you know, we had to wear the uniform one day a week. And it was a, um, I was the only English major because of ROTC that was required to take calculus and physics. So I graduated with, with more credits than I, than I needed. So um, that was a, that was a wonderful thing. And so um, I picked up Naval Aviation um, during, you know, when we put in for what do we want to do? Um, graduating in, in, in 94 from Hampton University, um, go down to Pensacola. And, um, and I had a realization, you know, you have these dreams from when you're seven and eight years old, right? Um, you have these things that you want to do. Like a lot of people want to be a basketball player, want to be a baseball player, whatever, whatever. Um, you know, want to be like Michael Jordan, be like Mike. Well, your body doesn't necessarily, <laughs> your body doesn't necessarily uh, can help you to fulfill those dreams that you have. And for me, flight school was always a struggle because I was prone to motion sickness. Oh, okay. Okay. And I... It, it, it affected my performance. It affected, it affected everything. Did, you know, everything I could to try to overcome it, taking ginger. Um, um, they had this program called Spin and Puke um, to try to desensitize. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I remember someone telling me, and I'm going to gross your listeners out. Hopefully no one is eating right now. You know, to say, well, eat bananas before flight. I was like, well, why eat bananas? Because it tastes the same coming up as it do. <laughs> Quality advice. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a struggle. Um, I managed to, um, to get through primary, um, earn my wings, um, um, uh, flying helicopters. I selected helicopters, um, 60 Bravos. Okay. And, um, and, and, and again, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for me. And then I show up at the Fleet Replacement Squadron, HSL-40. Um, this is in Jacksonville, Florida. Florida. And 
this is where you know to use a cliche to rubber you know meets the road i i uh i'm still suffering from motion sickness um now i'm i'm tasked to be flying a helicopter off their small boys, frigates and destroyers. And I don't know if you ever been on those, but those things are kind of, you know, moving yeah. around. And so, um, um, and to make a long story short, it was a, it was a tough decision for me, but, um, you know, I was doing well flying at out at the boat and landing on a boat. And, and, and things like that but in the back of my mind you know not in the back of, in the forefront of my mind I was a I was a average to below average pilot okay. and no part of you want to be below average when you're flying around the boat at night it, right right absolutely no part of you wants to be that way um and especially when you have other people in the aircraft with you, you know, in the 60 Bravos, you have a, um, um, a listed person in the back who um, does the warfare and the co-pilot. And um, it took it took me a while to come to the decision that 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 this isn't a career path for me. Okay. Um, and that was tough. That was a tough. And and the way it works in the Navy is after flight school, at least at this time, you have more of a commitment. Right. Um, if you complete flight schools and you now owe the Navy, uh, I think that time was six more years. Okay. And and so um, so now what now what I'm going to do for the next six years. And um, I remember just looking through a Navy publication about the different different officer programs or different different jobs in the in the Navy. And that's when I discovered Navy public affairs. So um, I, the first time I put in my package, I didn't get it. But um, while I was stationed in Jacksonville, I took a course at University of North Florida on intro to public relations. So I'm active duty and I'm taking an undergraduate course. Um, and my instructor in that course helped to write me a letter of recommendation. Um, so again, this right. overlap with academic academia, right, right. And um, so while I was serving on the USS Harry S. Truman, which was a new carrier, all right, at the, at the time, which was a wonderful um, experience, I get picked up for Navy Public Affairs, and so um, I leave the Truman. Um, and please, please stop me because, like I say, I can get a little long winded on no, this. No, this story. is really interesting. This is okay. Really okay uh, so um i go to defense information school in fort meade maryland and this is january of 2001 um i complete the program in march of 2001 and um i get stationed um to fallon nevada to be the okay. uh, public affairs officer at the naval um, Naval Strike, oh my gosh, NSOC, Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center. Okay. Which is now the home of Top Gun. They moved from San Diego to Fallon, Nevada, and here I am, the public affairs officer for this command, which also includes Top Gun. I'm like, oh my gosh, how, how crazy <laughs> is this? Um, uh, 
I managed to, uh, while there, get to do a little bit more flying, even though that wasn't wasn't my job. You know, they had helicopters and things out there. But um, it was this time where my military and academic life even overlaps even more. More, okay. Even more, because, you know, found the valley at 60 miles, 60 miles, I think it's southwest, or that doesn't sound right, from Reno, Nevada, 60 miles away from Reno, Nevada. And I get stationed out there. I don't know anyone. Um, I'm the only public affairs officer. Um, um, I'm not really a part of the naval aviation community anymore. Right. Um, and even when I was, I wasn't, you know, one of the, the jet folks, you know, the jet guy. So I was, I was kind of like on an island out there. Right. And I started taking a couple of online classes trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do, like business management, you know, and, and that wasn't really speaking to me. I actually took a real estate course. Um, that really wasn't speaking to me. Um, I looked at University of Nevada, Reno, as far as maybe a master's in English, um, but they didn't have any evening classes. All their classes were during the day. Um, and of course, you know, my, you know my, my day job is being a Navy public affairs officer. And I'm not sure what sparked it for me, but I walked on the campus of Western Nevada Community College um, to see if I could teach. Uh-huh. Again, I really don't know how academia works. I didn't know that traditionally you need to have a master's degree right. to teach at a community college. Well, to my surprise, they let me teach. And, oh, wow. Um, um, so... Um, they let me teach basic writing and basic grammar, non-credit courses. But um, I jumped ahead of my story. I came out to Fallon uh, like June of 2001. And then, of course, September, September 11th occurred. And so things completely changed um, for me out, out there. And then we became, you know, a wartime um, um, Navy or military, if you will. But 2002, fall 2002 is when um, I first started teaching. So here I am. I'm, I am a Navy public affairs officer um, by day. And in the evening, I'm teaching basic writing, basic grammar um, to either military students or um, dependents of military um members of the Paiute Nation, which was which was nearby. Right. And which was a wonderful opportunity. And 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 I say this that um uh, this is when it hits me that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh wow. Okay. This is what I want to do. Right. Um I don't know how I'll go about it. I don't know what I need to do. Um, but this is what I want to do. And um, my teaching there got interrupted um, when the Iraq war uh, broke out. I went over um, to the Middle East as a public affairs and we would start doing this media embed embed program. 
Right. Um, so there's a lot of stories there, which I won't go into. <laughs> um, but I get out the Navy um, in 2004 um, with this idea that I want to become, I want to teach on a college level. And the community college is, is kind of like where I wanted, where I wanted to do it. And not again, not knowing how academia works, um, I discovered that you can get a master's in creative writing. So um, I knew I was going back home to Pittsburgh for family reasons. And so I applied and got accepted to an MFA in creative writing program at the University of, 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 of Pittsburgh. So awesome. I, leave, I leave active duty and go into the reserves. So while I'm at, while I'm at Pitt, um, I'm in the reserves and I also get a job. So working at the Navy as a, uh, working as a public affairs specialist for the forest service. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. So I leave the Navy and get a government job working at the forest service and, um, doing, and doing that. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pause the story right there. Uh, and let's see if you have any, 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 any questions, um, um, but, but so that's when I get out in 2000 and 2004 and start navigating, um, the civilian world. That's interesting. I mean, immediately, I, I think it's, it's interesting that you, uh, worked for the forest service after going to Pittsburgh. I wouldn't have guessed that a city. It didn't. <laughs> it okay. didn't. So okay. here's the thing. Here's the thing. The job was in Morgantown, West Virginia. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm I'm living in West Virginia. I'm living in Morgantown, which is, you know, University of West Virginia, which is the blood rival of the University of Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, but you know, my family, you know, my mom was still in Pittsburgh. So I was driving back and forth, and it's like a 90-minute drive. Um, um, so I was basically, you know, I was taking classes at Pitt like Tuesday and Thursday evening. Um, I had the opportunity to like work like four days a week. So I didn't have to work on Friday. I look back at it now. I was like, okay, how did I make that work? But I somehow made it work taking classes in the evening at Pitt and doing my job in, in Morgantown, um, West Virginia. Now, no offense to to government work and government workers, um, but you know, coming out of the military, especially during wartime, you're used to a higher tempo of work, right? And then when I get this job with the Forest Service, um, I get tasked with something, and I'm like, whew, I go to my office, I knock it out in two hours, right? <laughs> And they're, they're like, wow. They're probably like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. We don't need this until like two weeks from now. I'm just like, whoa. And uh, <laughs> that's just one of the many things that I had to get used to working in the civilian world. Because in my entire adult life up until this point, I've been associated with the military. I had a hard time calling my supervisor by his first name. Yeah, you know, like yeah, call, right. me, call me Joe. I'm like, yes, sir. I'm like, no, call me Joe. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> 
Right. And so there was a difficult transition there navigating, you know, picking out, you know, what healthcare plan you want, who you want for your doctor, who you want for your dentist, when the military is like, whoever's working at the clinic, right? that's who, that's who sees you. So, um, but yeah, so um, I really enjoyed that forest service job, you know, being out, you know, West Virginia have some um, beautiful national national parks and things like that and it was it was a wonderful it was a wonderful wonderful job um i did that job for two years and then i got a job at the community college of allegheny county doing public relations and marketing so i'm on the administrative side and and it was there when i finished up my creative writing degree okay Okay. Um, and so I approached the academic dean at the community college. I said, hey, I got this master of fine arts and creative writing. I would like to teach. I would like to teach here, you know, thinking about an adjunct. So I'm sort of an adjunct position, position teaching in, in, in the evening. And so this is when um, Dean Todd, Allison Todd um, is her name, and um, she's no longer at CCAC. But she tells me about this new program that they're bringing on, that they're restarting. Um, so Community College of Allegheny County is an urban community college with like four campuses. Um, of course, it serves a large number of, 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 of veterans um, and large amount of African-American students. And their English department, I think at that time was like 15, maybe faculty. Um, but there was hardly any diversity and so they were bringing back this diversity program uh for folks um for faculty and um i had already had teaching experience from western nevada community college um you know i'm working at the school in public relations and marketing um and so i applied and myself and a good friend of mine now we are both hired at the same time jack morales as part of this um, diversity faculty program. And it was a one-year program. Um, Basically, we were faculty, we were teaching courses. And um, so that was kind of like my my entryway into becoming faculty. Um, And it was a wonderful experience and I really enjoyed it. And at this time, I'm now, I'm already, I had already started thinking about PhD programs. Okay, okay. Um, and two things happened. Number one, my last year, my MFA, I took a course called rhetorical education with Jessica Enoch, um, you know, who's now at the university of Maryland. And it kind of like, is this like open my eyes up to, to a new, new area subfield within English rhetoric and composition. And I, and she planted the seed about maybe I should think about a PhD. And in 2008, um, the post 9-11 GI Bill is passed. Now, up until this time, the GI Bill didn't apply to necessarily the officers or things of that sort, especially ROTC graduates. And so now they, they change it. So even though I did ROTC, I'm now eligible because I served. Uh, I missed having a hundred percent by like three months, but I still had 90% coverage. Oh. 
So, um, so I'm pretty much rooted in the region and, and, um, I end up going to, um, Carnegie Mellon university, um, which was wonderful, um, working with, um, the wonderful people there, um, at Carnegie Mellon and, um, one of my mentors, Linda Flower, who was a, um, you know, a, a, a force within within rhetoric and, and, and composition. Um, but, you know, and, and we talk about this internal drive. Um, I'm working full time teaching at the community college and at the community college, we're teaching five and five. I'm going to school. I'm taking two graduate courses at Carnegie Mellon. Um, in order to qualify for the, the GI Bill, you have to have at least two graduate courses. And I'm also doing the Navy Reserves. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm also doing the Navy Reserves in which, you know, um, I was able to do most of my reserve duty in the summertime when school wasn't in session and, um, you know, and, but I'm busy, you know, over this period of time, I'm making rank. And by 2013, um, I feel like I, I, I hit the wall that my plate was too full, right? Where I became the chair of the English department. Oh, wow. Um, I was the XO of a... Um, public affairs reserve unit okay and i'm in coursework you know <laughs> for, the, for the phd program <laughs> wow wow and i have a you know uh, uh, a brand new child at home i think he's two years old at the time and so i remember telling my wife i said okay i i always wanted to know when when the plate was full it's full now right it's full and I knew something had to give. It was a fork in the road that something was going to have to give. And um, one of the persons who was in um, the reserve unit with me, you know, came to me, you know, it was like, you know, hey, sir, did you know the Naval Academy are looking for instructors? And I'm like, Oh, okay. That's nice. They, you know, they probably want engineers, science or chemists. And he said, no, he said, they're looking for everybody, anybody. I'm like, really? And so I did a little research. It's like, oh, wow. The, the English department are looking for instructors as well. And so I put together a package and um, applied. And much to my surprise, I was accepted. And so now, after being in the reserves, so I was active duty just short of 11 years. At this point, I had been in the reserves almost 10 years, probably 10 years. Here I am coming back on active duty. I left, I left as a as a 03. Now I'm coming back on active duty as a 05. To, to teach in the English department at the United States Naval Academy. And it was, for me, you know, that was the most wonderful experience. 
um, the most fulfilling, I think, job um, in my naval career. And, and that in some ways where the, it's weird. I'm wearing a uniform every day. You know, I'm, I'm performing Navy commander. Right. Right. But in a lot of ways, that was when a transition from being military to an academic was, was kind of made complete. Gotcha. Okay. Right. And what it did for me um, emerge my civilian world of the, the community college job and my reserve w- world into one um, lower teaching load. And now I think my first year there, I did two independent studies to complete coursework. And so it was there, which I really kind of focused on, on the dissertation and, and, and completing my time. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Cause you know, you would think, Coming into the Naval Academy, it, it would be so, you know, a big adjustment, so much work, but in a lot of ways, it reduced some of your work because like you said, you, you were able to merge these different roles and these different identities that you were carrying and these, you know, this different workload into the Naval Academy. So, you know, that's amazing. That, and that's really interesting. Absolutely. And, and what, what I was able to do you know, I always thought of, of my graduate studies as being part of my work. So when even when I was teaching at the community college, things that I was learning in graduate school, I was trying to apply or see if I could make it work in my classroom. And definitely at the Naval Academy. So I tailored um, this independent um, study to, to develop a course that I wanted to teach on rhetoric and leadership at the Naval Academy. And so able to implement that. So, um, but the other thing that the Naval Academy helped me to understand teaching there is how does, it was beginning my knowledge of how academia work, first of all, at the four year level, right, as well as, um, you know, in terms of the PhD. So at the, at the Naval Academy, you know, 50% of the faculty are civilian PhDs and the other 50, 50% are, are military. And usually, you know, we just have a master's and stuff like that. Um, so just the interactions with them, developing mentors, seeing how they go about um, hiring people. While I was there, I think there was three faculty searches and just being part of that process and seeing the quality of the candidates who were coming in that were applying was a real eye opener for me. Now, here I am in graduate school, you know, wanting to do this full time. It helped me to understand what was going to be needed in order to be competitive on the job. Right, right, right. Interesting. So it's like, in a way, you get this inside view and a view of like the business side of academics, you know? Not only the business side, but, you know, the, the, the type of questions they will ask during a job talk and, okay, you're going to ask this question and you're going to be the naysayer. You're going to ask the tough questions over here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, and to see how people evaluate after how a person, you know, did in, in, in those conversations. So, yeah, 
definitely, it was definitely very helpful as a graduate student, you know, and, and, and thinking about that and observing that, which, you know, helped me when I later went on the job market. Amazing. Amazing. And, you know, so in the beginning of, of this interview, you talked about grit, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that being one of the things that veterans bring to higher education and exude. Well, you know, something I've noticed and it, it's something that you've pointed out in your own journey. Not only do you have grit, but oftentimes I find that veterans are willing to exploit opportunities, Right. Mm. And if the listeners have been have been listening, you know, uh, you know, somebody gave you advice about the boost program and you took advantage of it. You know, Uh, somebody somebody mentioned uh, the program at the community college. You took advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Somebody suggested that you should go to get a Ph.D. You took advantage of it. You listened Mm -hmm. and you exploited that opportunity. And then. It, it sounds to me like uh, since they called you sir, probably an enlisted personnel suggested the Naval Academy, and you looked into it and you went and did that too. So, you well, know, I, I never, something I never said there. I never thought about it that way. I never thought about it that way. And um, the other thing too is, um, wow. You know, when, when I when I when I talk to my older son, it's like when those opportunities be, present themselves, you got to be prepared for them. Right. Right. Open but and prepared. Right. Open and, open and prepared. Absolutely. So. Here's another opportunity <laughs> that, that will present okay. myself okay, great. So by going to teach at the Naval Academy. Um, um you know, I met and became very good friends with a colleague um, in the history department, Sharika Crawford. And um, we did a, we took some midshipmen to to Ghana, which was a wonderful experience. Ah, very cool. Her husband is a Ghanaian and, and my wife is a, is a historian of, um, of Ghana. And so that was a wonderful experience. Uh, um, situation but so i'm coming up to my the end of my time at the naval academy i'm still probably a year away from um finishing a dissertation so i I made a decision i'm going to retire i'm going to retire from the naval reserves and did my retirement at the naval academy um but one of the things that i had learned by being at the naval academy how to be competitive was to try to get a fellowship Try to get it like a, um, at least for this one, it was a pre-doctoral fellowship, something that's going to separate you from other people right. when you're going on a job market. And I started applying for everything and I was applying for everything. One day I come to, I come to work and, um, and someone had slid underneath my door about this fellowship at Emory University. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, the James Weldon Johnson for the study Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, because my dissertation um, was dealing with some of those issues. And to come to find out is my friend Sharika had put this underneath the door. And I'm like, hmm, okay, let me think about this. And I was like, oh, what the heck? I applied for it, Uh, along with the 20 other fellowships. I get rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. And 
the last one I, 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 I wait to hear from is this one, and I got it. It only takes one. It only takes one. And it wasn't one I had originally identified. I hadn't identified this one. Right. And so I had this opportunity to go to Emory University in Atlanta for a year, not work, not, I mean, not teach, not do anything. My wife at this time is teaching at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. So I'm driving back and forth between Atlanta um and 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 charleston and so i just get to concentrate on writing this dissertation and and the but the people i met who were also fellows there that were uh, you know there were there were full professors to other graduate students like me and again learning more about how academia works and um before going on a job market um, have an opportunity to do a mock job talk and getting feedback. And um, I introduced them to some lexicon. Um, are you familiar with the term murder board? Have you heard that term, Luke? Murder, a murder board? So, so basically, um, basically, it's a presentation that military um, folks would give, and you're just asking for tough, critical feedback without regards to the person's feelings because you're bringing an idea and of course in a military environment you know you know lives are at stake right so um i i'm telling my colleagues at at emory i said i want you to give me tough feedback don't sugarcoat it right you know don't sugarcoat it give it to me give it to me straight because i want to if i'm going to fail i want to fail here learn how I failed and then adjust. So when I go out on doing these job interviews and things like that, I'm going to be a stronger candidate. Right. So yeah, so I, I introduced them to that term and I got great feedback and um, I had a successful, you know, you know, job hunting season and um, um, finished a, finished a PhD and, and um like I said, you know, Lee, after leaving the Naval Academy, retiring from the Navy, just made this full transition to being an academic. But there was that 10 year overlap between academia and the military. Right. And, you know, I think this is this pops up a little bit on the show. However, I think it's more so in your case than some of the other people, uh, because really your whole kind of higher ed experience, whether it be student or or, you know, working. Mm-hmm. is all interwoven into the Navy somehow, right? Yes. And, and that's just amazing. It's like you, you get the first opportunity in the boost program, and then that carries itself out into the reserves, and that carries itself out to the Naval Academy that's, you know, giving you the teeth to have these other opportunities and to, to set the base for, you know, not only your fellowship, but what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's really, really interesting. And that's, I, I don't think, you know, for our listeners that are just civilian listeners that have no military experience, I don't think they realize that while not everybody has the opportunity or every unit lets you go to school or not everyone, there are people who have an experience that's interwoven with, you know, with academics. 
And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting because you've had a few unique things, you know, like being a pilot. That's an English major, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I honestly was wondering when we were going to get to the English part, because I just assumed you were going to be like my undergrad was in mathematics or something like right. that. You know, right. that's, that was my assumption. And uh, so, so that's really, really interesting because, you know, there are these like unique facets, but, but yours, you have it interwoven the whole time, but, you know, grit's pulling you through, but you are open and willing to investigate these things. And they seem like a good idea. You took advantage of the opportunity and, and that's huge because, you know, the, the higher ed job market for those listeners that aren't aware is a tough job market. It's tough. Very it's, tough. It's, it's tough. And I think, you know, I didn't have a large, I didn't have, I didn't have any debt, you know. Um, That's awesome. You know, because of ROTC and then because of the GI Bill. Right. And then what the GI Bill didn't cover, I was, I was, my job picked up, you know, um, the community college had a tuition reimbursement part. So, so I could, I could do all that. Um, but also I had the teaching experience, right? You know, when I'm going on a job market, I'm not your stereotypical, you know, fresh out of undergrad, into grad school, PhD. You know, I've had all these years of, of teaching experience. What I didn't have was the research and scholarship experience, which I started um, um, to pick up along the way. And Emory, I think, was a, was a, was a good help in that direction, what it means to be a scholar um, um um teacher so but yeah it was you know it's 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 funny to hear you th- <laughs> you talk about it and and put it in perspective but english you know i always enjoyed reading i always enjoyed reading i always enjoyed um writing at least the writing about the stuff that i care about you know and um when i did the mfa just like anyone else i was going to write the great american novel or whatever um um which ended up being like a you know my thesis was a collection of short stories some of them were military related some of them were not um but but even then the goal wasn't necessarily you know, to be a writer, the goal for me was, was to teach. And that's what I really enjoy doing. And, and I make the argument all the time that um, being a military officer and being a faculty member, there is so much more in common than not. Academia and the military have a lot of things in common. And one of the things just you're, you're around and working with young people, Right. When I was a division officer on a on a Truman, the average age of, of a carrier, I think, is like 19 and a half or 20 years old. So you're surrounded, you know, by young people and working with young people and dealing with, you know, the issues that, you know, you know, your mission may be to teach. Your mission may be that, you know, we got to keep the the uh, the aircraft, you know, fixed. But to help to get to that mission, to complete that mission, you got to deal and work with people. And that's where the humanities come in. What does that mean in working with people? And I think the humanities, I think, I think um, whether it's history or, or literature, um, 
great speeches, whatever, is, is to help to think about that, is to help, help to think about those things and dealing with people um, and understanding people. Absolutely. You know, there's, and that's, you know, they label the soft skills today, but it's like part of that. And then part of, you know, human problems, most 99% of our human problems are not new, right? So they're not things, new. Right. They're things they're, that people have written about and studied and, and shared for centuries. You know, I think one of the issues I have with the Navy, and I saw this at the Naval Academy, it, there seems to be an overemphasis on, you know, technical majors and technical careers and things like that. And um, which I understand to a certain degree, but I do think the humanities often get overlooked. And one of the projects, one of my early projects, academic projects, um, I worked with a colleague at the Naval Academy, Noah Comet, um, and we published an article in, um, man, I'm forgetting the name of the journal now, um, uh, Humanities and Leadership, I think it is. Okay. And um, we got to interview um, then Joint Chairman of Staff, General Dempsey. Oh, okay. Uh, who has a Master of Arts in Literature from Duke University. And we got a chance to talk to him about how, you know, how having this degree help him um, do his job, um, do his, you know, be a leader. And one of the things that he said, which is so true, he said, the higher up you get, the less in contact with people you have. And so the most of your contact is through your words. You know, whether it's you're writing a speech, giving a speech, writing an email and these things. So, so this, this, this importance about language um, that the humanities help to give you and a tool, tool for leadership, right? Um, right. So this is this is where I am. This is where I where I think about and 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 I don't want to get too political. I'm not going to get political on your on your podcast here, Luke. But I was thinking about what General Miley said the other day um, about critical race theory and how important it is for junior officers um, to learn these ideas. We're not talking about indoctrination. We're right. talking about learning ideas and, um, and to weigh these ideas. And that was one of the things that I myself did at the Naval Academy. Now, I didn't teach any critical race theory. Matter of fact, I had to do some raw research. And um, one of the things I discovered, Derek Bell was from my hometown of Pittsburgh. Okay. He's also an Air Force veteran. He served during the Korean War. And he is one of the founders of this critical race theory. And through my own scholarship, through my own research, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the importance of, 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 of what the military has had on black, um, black America and where black veterans have served um, 
in in large roles within the civil rights movements. Um, but but coming back to the to the military academies, it's important to have these ideas. So when I was teaching at the Naval Academy, when I was teaching literature, it was important for my students to see that you know not every place is going to be like where you're from, right? You're about to join a a diverse. You're about to be leaders of a diverse organization. The military, um, I read somewhere on the enlisted ranks, is like 40% people of color. Right. Right. So it's, it's not going to look like, you know, your hometown, wherever you're from. You're going to have people from Des Moines, Iowa, as well as South Side of Chicago. And as, a, as an officer, how are you going to, you know, handle that situation or deal with potential situations? So it's important to expose um, these officers in training, these diverse, these diverse ideas. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, so this is something I've, I've well, I've, wrote, I've written about it, but I've also, I think a lot about it. It's, it's like we, in the military, we have two layers of an intercultural experience, right? Like you're saying, there's the intra-U.S. layer, we're having these intercultural exchanges from, from just people from our nation or trying to be a U.S. citizen. And then oftentimes with deployments, we're taking this intercultural interactions of intra-U.S. people and we're going overseas and then having intercultural exchanges with Absolutely. our diverse group, with other diverse groups. And I think that's something people overlook often. You know, it, it's, it's so much more complex than just individuals going out, you know? They, they definitely overlooked. And I remember when I was, when I was serving um, in the Middle East and when we had these veterans, I mean, when we had these media folks come on board, um, different ships and the carriers, and that was one of the things they remarked. It was like, this is not anything that they expe had expected to see. Right. You know, you have these 18, 19 year old kids, you know, when they're not at work, they're 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 playing video games. Right. And, and folks who, you know, probably wouldn't be friends outside of military are like the best friends in the world. And um, it's so it's so diverse. And the other thing, too, about the military in. Um, is is you know because we have shared experiences i think it can overcome whether it's you know political differences or maybe some sort of life experiences um to help bring bonds and and stuff uh, um closer closer together and i just recently read an article too that that wherever there are large military bases um those cities are like the most diverse cities um in america Right. And so um, there's something to be said about that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think about where not all, but many bases are located, you know, oftentimes they're located in areas that might be a little insulated uh, from the rest of the United States otherwise. So, you know, you do have these little islands uh, around the base of these towns, because, you know, largely towns spring up around bases. Right. Right. You know, there's such an economic uh, kind of hand-holding there that goes on. So it is really interesting to see that uh, because, you know, like you said, extremely diverse and, and becoming more diverse every day. 
And then, you know, being into, say, areas of the South or areas of the Midwest that might not be like that otherwise, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So, Derek, I want to be I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're a busy man. I, you know, I, knew, I know you're used to being busy, but <laughs> as we've learned, but um, can you share with the audience what you've got going on currently, what you're working on or anything that might be in the near future? Sure. So there are, there are two um, current, two projects that I'm working on. Um, probably the most important one right now is my um, first academic book project. Um, I'm still working on a title. I'm visiting title. Uh, but basically what I am looking at is the rhetorical actions African-American communities took in response to urban renewal policies. Oh, okay. Very interesting. In the 50s and 60s. And my case studies are Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, and St. Paul, Minnesota. How did these communities respond to these arena projects, these highways projects um, um, during this time. And, and, and I think it's a area of civil rights scholarship, especially in, in my field of rhetoric and composition uh, that I think gets overlooked. You know, when we think about the civil rights, we think about, you know, the American South. Well, there were things that were, that were going on in the urban North um, during the same time and in, in, in some ways similar. So that's the book project that I'm working on. I'm also working on a digital humanities project with my colleague, Ann Bonds. Um, she's in a geography department here. And we are, um, the title of the project is Mapping Racism and Resistance in Milwaukee County. So we're going to, using GIS, software, we're going to map all the restrictive housing covenants okay. in Milwaukee. And our partner is um, a group called Mapping Prejudice out of Minnesota. They've done this with um, Hennepin County, which is um, where Minneapolis is located. Um, so um, they're helping us with this with Milwaukee County. But what is different is we're not just going to map these restrictive housing covenants. We also want to look like look at the ways and map the ways that um, citizens were resisting these count these covenants. You know what were the legal actions? What were the protests taken? So this is going to be a digital humanities project that's 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 focusing on Milwaukee County, and. Um, I think the what Milwaukee is probably most well known for is the 200 days of housing protest march in the late 60s. Um, but what's often get overlooked, you know, what was the lead off for that, or what was a spark for that, right. was when a was when a black Vietnam veteran was denied housing in a particular part of the city because he was black. <laughs> right so again you have you have these veterans returning home we saw this with world war ii and yeah right spurring on the civil rights so um so that those are the things that i'm working on right now 
I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I'm doing this research and um, I love being in, in, in the archives and, and, and learning, learning these different things and picking up these little nuggets. That's awesome. You know, and it is interesting when you get, when you start digging deep, uh, you know, some of the stuff you come across, it's just, you know, just buried. It, it's really interesting to see uh, what, what's not talked about, how things have changed and all, all these, it's just so interesting. I'll tell you what is interesting about these two projects is, you know, the relation between those. Mm-hmm. And I think people often, when we talk about civil rights movements, we often use a social lens, right? It's at least in, in, in pop culture, it's always like social movement. What about space, urban mm-hmm. space, rural space, economics, yes, you know, exactly. policies? Uh, there are so many things. So what you're doing is absolutely huge because, I mean, honestly, you, you know, you're, you're taking urban space, you're taking policies, you're taking economic things, and you're, and you're putting it all together with this ultimate social problem. Um, so you're fleshing out lots of details that are extremely important because we're talking about where people live, you know, exactly. access to, like you, like you mentioned, the, the veteran. Uh, just having a, a place to to live and survive, and uh, you know the the way you're going about, it, and I think it's completely interesting that you're going to map it out, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're 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 in the beginning stages of this. It's 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 very interesting. Um, you know the you know not to get too deep into it that that these housing covenants first popped up in the 1920s and how how the effect of them how they affect today that you know the most you know segregated cities in this country are 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 in the north which you know surprises some people right um at 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 times so i'm really in i'm really enjoying it um i also want to say luke this is a wonderful thing that you're doing I've become a fan. I've been listening to these podcasts and um, thank, thank you for giving a platform um, to, to veterans and, and veterans in academia because too often there is a disconnect and uh, between the two groups and, um, and, and think this is important. And, and I've learned a lot, you know, listening, listen to some of your, to some of your previous guests. So I just want to say, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And, and, and um, I look forward to listening to you more in the future. Absolutely. It's very humbling. Thank you so much. This, I mean, I love this project. I love it for this exact reason, being able to hear someone's story first. I feel like I'm, I'm a little greedy like that. I get to hear it before everyone else, but you know, I, and I'm sure as you've been listening, you've, you've noticed that there are so many threads of all of our lives that are similar, yet all those things, you know, on top of those threads are so wildly different. And mm-hmm. it really makes everyone's story so unique and so interesting. And uh, I think that's what's so captivating about them. But then also we're tackling this kind of veteran anti-intellectual stereotype on its mm-hmm. head, right? right. <laughs> While right. we're doing it, and and uh, 
Thank you. But you know, I wonder how much, and, and I'm not want to open up a new line of conversation, but I wonder how much of that is a recent phenomenon because there was a there was a point in time where a lot more people were veterans. And, You're absolutely and, right. Um, so, but yeah, that stereotype has 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 developed over time, which is something that I've been fighting against. And um, so, yeah, let me let me let me leave it there. We might have to do a we might have to do a part maybe, two. Yeah, I was about to say maybe we'll have a we part might have two. to do a part two. We we covered the bio. Let's let's get into some of these ideas. Um, one thing I didn't say to you that um, when I finished. Um, my, my, my PhD, I got accepted into a, um, a postdoc fellowship, um, called the Chamberlain project, um, basically taking, um, military folks with terminal degrees and allowing them to teach at these elite institutions or so-called elite institutions, if you will, in, in, um, in the in the in the northeast, um, Swarthmore, Oberlin, Amherst, Wesleyan, and um, I had the opportunity to teach at Amherst College, which was a wonderful awesome. ex- experience. Before that, but but there are some campuses that were kind of resistant um, 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 to it, which I know you're aware. So right. you know, <laughs> I'm gonna make a request. Let's 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 do another one in in in, in the future and um and 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 get into these some of these these issues about the stereotypes that people have of 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 veterans, I as well it. as as well as the stereotypes folks have of academics as well. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so let's let's just go ahead and announce it. We'll follow it up, and let's you know we can talk about all the cross sections. You know, uh, I would like to to talk about all of our identities and what what is true, what is not true, and yeah. and you know all the good things that come from them. Uh, ultimately, when when people like us are in these roles, so absolutely. absolutely. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Derek. So ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and our guest today was Dr. Derek G. Hanley from the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Again, Derek, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Until next time, everybody, this is another episode of Veterans and Academics. Take care. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.